thing is kid music from the 18th century. And so, uh, therefore, it's above, you know, PhD level today. But when it was written, it was for children to sing about God and church. Because in the day in which Isaac Watts wrote, apparently, um, there wasn't a lot of melody. There was a lot of um, singing of the Psalms in English, so not a lot of rhyming. Of course, if you want to do it right, you've got to sing it in Hebrew. But nobody's willing to do that. So they're singing the Psalms in English. And they're not real melodic, and Isaac Watts is a musician, and he wanted to have the children sing God's praises in, uh, in, mel- in a melodic way. And um, can anybody just think for a second, that song was originally called, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. I don't know why they changed it for this hymnal to, we sing the greatness of our God. But he is great. But I sing the mighty power of God was Watts' words, and I hate when they change good words. When you change bad words to something more biblical, that's great. But what doctrinal category of God's essence are we talking about in that song? We sing the mighty power of God. What, what do we call that? Just, that's God's omnipotence or his all power. God is the three O's, you know, he's omnipresent. That's all pre- everywhere present within his creation. But he's also not part of creation. So he's imminent everywhere present, but transcendent, not part of the creation. He's omnipresent. He is all powerful. That's the word omnipotent. He is all powerful, which we just sang about the mighty power of God. And he is um, omniscient. He knows all the knowable. And we believe that the doctrine of omniscience works like this, that God knows the end from the beginning, according to the scriptures. And therefore he knows not only what will happen and all that already has happened. That's easy for him because he's always been eternally present. But he knows all that might happen if, the, if conditions change. I think that his knowledge is boundless. So, um, so that's a song about God's omnipotence. The mighty omnipotent power of God is the topic. And the reason I asked to sing that tonight is because that is the topic in, uh, on display in Isaiah 14 in the section dealing with uh, the Assyrian Empire and then what God does in fulfillment of what he says in Isaiah 14. He fulfills it in Isaiah 36. So we're going we're gonna to skip um, a portion of Isaiah for now, having worked up the Assyrian, God's oracle to Assyria, and we're going to go right to Isaiah 36 in just a moment and see uh, how the story unfolds, or begin to see the story unfolding um, about how God does what he said he would do, and it's all about his omnipotence. And we're going to need the Spirit of God to equip us to think God's thoughts after him, to not only understand these things in the moment, in the intake phase, but then bring them to bear in the application phase, in the execution of the things of God that he wants us to, to think his thoughts after him in our lives, in our interactions, in our relationships, and our challenges and our joys and our sorrows. And that is the work of God through us moment by moment. And we really are, um, are encouraged strongly by the Apostle Paul in two different key places, key, key places in 1 Thess 5 and Ephesians 4 to let God the Holy Spirit have his way in us. And when we don't, it's called grieving the Spirit in um, Ephesians chapter 4 and it's quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5. The grieving is primarily about the problem of personal sin, and the quenching is primarily about the rejection of God's word. In the context, Paul says in 1 Thess 5, it's prophetic utterance, the prophesying that was going on in the first century, which today we have the Bible. 
And in, in both cases, there's a problem with God is in you, but we're exhibiting, expressing the flesh, the sinful nature, instead of the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ as the Spirit is building it in us. And the problem of personal sin is always going to dog us, but the solution to it is always the cross. And under, hear me clearly, I don't mean to say that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ that you need to get saved again and again and again. There is a system of theology that says you need to get the sacrament on a regular basis because you get a little bit more grace to go forward in life, and so you've got to keep taking the sacrament to, to, to make sure you're covered. As you, we don't mean anything like that when we say that forgiveness of sins and cleansing is available to you as a believer through the blood of Jesus Christ upon confession. We, we want to teach that from 1 John chapter 1, but we don't mean at all that you need to get saved again or that you're not forgiven of your sins in the sense of your eternal relationship with God. We mean that in the context of 1 John, fellowship with God, the lifestyle that God calls us to, the birthright of the believer, is broken horrifically and tragically through personal sin, and that defiles us. And as Jesus illustrated in John 13, you don't need to start over with a whole bath, but if your feet get dirty, you do need him to wash your feet. So the partial cleansing of the believer, I believe, is on display in John 13, and I think it's what 1 John 1, 9 gets at. So I always give you a moment as believer priests to confess your sins to God before we study. And I would rather that you did this all the time, whenever it occurs to you, whenever you think about it, um, but I would hate for you to sit through this time now and waste it. We'd much rather the Spirit of God was in the driver's seat, as it were. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. I'll open us in prayer. Our Father, we've sung your mighty power tonight, and we have taken the occasion that you've given us to think about you, to reflect on what you said, to learn of you. Father, there's a gold mine at our fingertips in the word of God of knowledge of you. God, you're the Holy One of Israel. Your very character is the basis for that which is actually righteous and correct, and our access to truth is a truth that you have construed in history by your sovereign, omnipotent, good will. So we praise you that all reality being construed by you is ours to access through the revelation you've given us of yourself. And we want that transformation of our characters, of our thoughts, of our perspectives as we touch the eternal word of God tonight. Father, let it not just that we work through it, but let it work through us so that we're different. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're in Isaiah 14, where it's the section in the book of Isaiah where he goes through all the different Gentile nations. Well, not all of them, but lots of the Gentile nations around Israel. And he includes Israel in this list, but he goes through all these nations uh, in judgment for their uh, idolatry, their arrogance, the um, the fruit of the flesh, if you will, that is characterizing all these different nations. And um, we, we're in Isaiah 14, 
where there's these four little verses, verses 24 through 27, that we looked at two weeks ago when we were together, where Isaiah is giving God's oracle of judgment on the great superpower, the great political and military superpower of the day in which Isaiah wrote. That would be the Assyrian Empire, the great Eastern Semitic Empire builders, the Assyrians. And they're in, um, they're in the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia. Um, and uh, we just heard about all the nations looking through Babylon in chapter 13 and 14. And here at the end of chapter 14, we're going to just give a few verses to Assyria. And it's a wonderful oracle of God's judgment. Tonight, I want to begin to tell the story that Isaiah tells in narrative fa- fashion. He tells the story of the way God dealt with Assyria in the reign of King Hezekiah. So uh, just by way of review, we said in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24, he has sworn, who has sworn? Yahweh of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, Jehovah Sabaoth is the way it says it maybe in your King James. That's Yahweh. Jehovah is not a, not a thing. It's not a real name. Um, and I can walk you through that sometime if you'd like to. The, the Tetragrammaton is written yod heh vav and or Wah-Heh, um, Wow-Heh. And so we, we conjecture the pronunciation Yahweh, but it's the sacred name of God built on the root for self-existence, for the word Hayah, to be or to exist. He who is, and no one makes it be that way, might be one possible indication by the word Yahweh, but it's the self-existing creator God who has covenanted with Israel. He is also of the armies. I had a question. Let me learn more about Yahweh of the armies. A sabaoth is a sabah, but it's plural. So you have a host, which is a bunch of something. And then if you have it in plural with the oat ending for feminine plural, then it's a lot of sabahs. Cherubim is the, im is the masculine plural ending in Hebrew. Oat is the feminine plural ending. Is that, y'all remember that? All right. So what is a bunch of sabahs getting? What's a sabah? What, what is that? It's a, it's a host or a bunch of things. The multitudes, you could translate it. So you have one multitude. Well, that's a, that's a multitude. But if you have a bunch of multitudes, well, that's a bunch of multitudes. So that's what this means. And in context, the question is of what? And I think it's of troops. And I'm not alone in this, but it's not the only view either. That Lord of the armies would be a legitimate translation, especially in this context. And I think this name for God, Yahweh Sabaoth, comes to the fore, it shows up, um, especially in judgment and military contexts. And I think it's important to notice that he's, he's got his uniform on here. He's, you know, George Washington was the only guy at the Continental Congress with his uniform on. They're looking around, who will we get to lead the army of, uh, that's already forming up in Boston where we're already getting, getting shot at? Uh, well, who will lead? And, and Washington's like... Um, well, I'm going to wait till they ask me. Well, Colonel Washington, what do you think? Oh, I, I didn't wear my uniform for nothing would be, I think, what he was thinking. He didn't say it that way. But um, this is God shows up in, in, in military array. And that's important because the biggest military force in the world that is about to destroy this, the northern kingdom and completely deport them as God's judgment on the northern, northern kingdom of Israel is also about to destroy most of the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the recipient of this letter, this oracle from God through Isaiah. 
Um, they're the powerful army in the world. They're the Egyptians, like in the Exodus, worried about the military of the Egyptians. Now it's the military of the Assyrians. So Lord of the Armies, I think, is what is in view in context. And here's what he's saying. What are the armies? I think they're angelic armies. It's, it's the angel armies. I think we're going to hear about the angels in chapter 37. So he has sworn saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. This is a little bit of godly, divine, appropriate bravado. And we all, I mean, for me, this is pep rally time. God Almighty says, just as I set out to do, so I have done. I made a blueprint. I built the house just like I wanted it. I knew what I wanted when I made the blueprint. I showed you the blueprint. And now, ta-da, here's the house. Do you like that? I made the plan on the, on the, on the map. We did a little, we, we used to call it a chalk drill or a rock drill. We get a map, lay it out on the, on the ground, and this is north, and these are where the bad guys are. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and here's the way the attack is going to go. And at the end of the attack, once it actually happens, it's going to go just like I showed you on the sand table, just like the map. God is going to do it the way he's going to do it. Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And this is why we sang about the mighty power of God tonight, because this is the sovereign, omnipotent God with whom we must deal. And what we get from this, remember two weeks ago, if we really imbibe this teaching from Isaiah, from the Lord through Isaiah, we will have the fear of the Lord, because he is what? He is omnipotent. And infinite power, standing next to infinite power makes you kind of nervous. That's the idea, the fear of the Lord. Just as I planned, it will stand. It has happened what I wanted. The things that haven't happened yet will happen just like I want them to. In verse 25, and this is the plan, to break Assyria in my land. Look at the details of prophetic scripture. I'm going to break the Assyrians in my land. So when the Assyrians march on God's land of Israel... The careful reader of Isaiah chapter 14 is supposed to say, this is all going according to plan. This is what we expect to happen, and we expect there to be a breaking of Assyria by God himself in his land. And upon my mountains, I will tread him down. Now, where does that, does that echo for you? At camp this year, we taught the kids a methodical inductive process of studying the Bible. And the third step is called correlation, where you having interpreted the text correctly so far, you would say, what does this text, how does this text connect with the rest of the Bible? And so you would especially look at other places where such similar things happen. Where does God tread down an enemy in the text of scripture? Well, Genesis 3.15 would be my first place to go because the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that apparently would be with his foot because the serpent would crush or bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, and I am among those that believe that's an early statement, the earliest statement of the gospel. But um, what else do we have of a treading down? My favorite, my favorite sign-off verse is Romans 16.20. Do you know it? The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I mean, drop the mic. It's, it's good. I can live on that. The God of all peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, it's a similar language that we have from Paul um, to what Isaiah is saying. Actually, God is saying uh, in, the, in the pen of, of Isaiah, in this oracle that Isaiah received from God. So it will depart from upon them, his yoke. His yoke will depart from upon them. It'll go away. His burden from upon their shoulder will depart. So, so the, the oppression of the Assyrian on my people, not going to be a problem anymore. But we're scared of them, I know. They got tanks. They got nukes. They got po- political power. They have geopolitical power. They can ruin us in a second. And God says, that's not a match for me. I'm going to remove their yoke. This is the plan. Back to verse 24, the plan. This is the plan that has been planned upon the whole earth. And now my perspective just exploded. I was worried about the near-term problem of the Assyrians coming to get us. And God says, actually, I've got a plan for everybody. I've got a plan for everything upon the whole Tebel, the whole earth, as we saw last time. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. Remember our context, we're in chapters 13 through 23, all these collected oracles against all the nations. Well, the Philistines have iron chariots. That's, that's the rest of chapter 14. What about the Egyptians? They're a mighty army to the west. God's not impressed. If you connect all of the geopolitics to God, you say, well, that's interesting that that's going on, but we don't know what God's going to do. We just know God's going to glorify himself. And while we're correlating, we know that according to Romans 8, 28, that all the nitinoid geopolitical things. What are the globalists going to do? They're next. They're going to get our guns. Well, they, they probably are. But all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8, 28, including all the wicked ideas and, uh, and plans of the globalists. If, if God is telling Israel, just relax about the Assyrians because he's going to do it, so trust in him, then you and I can apply that to anything, to any geopolitical circumstance. And we need to. I'll tell you why. We need to do that. Because God is not going to send us an Isaiah to the United States to tell you prophetically that this is what the Lord hath said. Now, you can turn on all kinds of Christian TV, some radio, all kinds of silly books, that they'll try to say they're a prophet, they're going to tell you what's happened. I I remember fondly, the conversation between Pat Robertson or someone, I don't want to name names, and, uh, and another um, uh, charismatic preacher in the Romney-Obama election. On the eve of that election, what was that, uh, 2000, I want to say, was that 12? That was a 2012 election. On the eve of the 2012 election, I saw this after the fact on some smart aleck had, had captured this and shown it on YouTube. One of the two men said, the Lord told me that Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee, is going to win the election. The other prophet, who isn't, stopped and said, wait, wait, what did you just say? He said, the Lord told me. I had a dream last night. The Lord told me that Mitt Romney is going to win the election. And the other man, who always, always saying God tells him stuff, says, he did? Because I believe in prophecy. So you're telling us that the Lord has told you that Mitt Romney is going to win the election? And the man who, whichever one it was, that said the original statement of false prophecy said, yes. 
and put himself under the curse of Deuteronomy 13 and 17. I believe those 13 and 18 about the false prophet. Because what happened? Do y'all know what happened? I don't know if you remember this. There's never been a President Romney. Uh, how did he tell you? Did you hear a voice? I think Isaiah has visions and, and hears voices. Samuel definitely hears God calling him all through the prophecies that Samuel, the, the prophet from a little boy received. He heard a voice of God audibly and he went and said, Eli, I'm here. You're calling me. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And he called him again. He's hearing audible voices. That small, still voice that Elijah hears is an actual audible voice. It's not an inner leaning or impression. But that's what prophecy is, is it's God directly revealing to people. And so why am I telling you about the people on TBN? I'm saying that you're not going to have someone come to you with a prophecy that, you know, we're going to add Revelation chapter 23, right? Or the book of 2 Revelation or 1 Corinthians chapter 17 or something. We're not going to add to the scriptures with some new prophetic utterance for this time in which we live, um, where a prophet is going to come from God to covenant United States, since there is no covenant between God and this nation or any other Gentile nation. Covenants between God that God has made with nations are Israel, including the new covenant. The house of Judah and the house of Israel is the new covenant, Jeremiah 34. But you're not going to have a prophet come and tell you what's going to happen. So you have to apply what God did through Isaiah with Israel. And you have to say, there's a principle in view here, and there's something we can learn from it. And we wouldn't uh, take to ourselves the things that God says about Israel and directly apply them, but we would extract the principles and say, this is about God's omnipotence. And you can trust him always to have his way. His way is better than my way or your way. And Jesus taught us that because he's better at it too. Jesus is much better at wanting things than I am. And he said many times in his prayers recorded in the New Testament, Father, have your will. Let your will be done. All right. Excursus on false prophets complete. Verse 27 says, For the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, has planned, and who can frustrate it? His hand, which is stretched out. Who can turn it back? That's arm wrestling with God. I'm a no on that one. That's going to tear your arm off, right? And flip you off into the, the, the galaxies and galaxies behind you. I mean, it, we're talking about infinite power. You don't want to try to arm wrestle with God. So the Lord is going to have his way. And that is good news. And that's what he says about Assyria. About Assyria that he's going to tread them underfoot on the mountains in his land. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 36, where in the same collection of this prophet's oracles, later on in his ministry, you have a story. That's a narrative. We, we switch from prophetic oracles to narrative. And it's interesting that you have that in this folio. There is an echo of it in um, both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The parallel passage, I don't have it in my notes, but you have it in both the, the history uh, collections of the kings. And so let's just sink in and tell the story. In Isaiah chapter 36, and in verse 1 through 3, you have the setting. Anytime you tell a story, you need to have the setting. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, um, and I believe this is 701 B.C., so we're 19 years after, or 
excuse me, we're 21 years after the Assyrians have destroyed the northern kingdom. And, is, and Judah's down there by itself with now their neighbor the direct to the north of them is Assyria. And they've transplanted the northern kingdom over into Mesopotamia and they've put Gentiles into, into the area of the northern kingdom. And that's why the Samaritans are called half-breeds because the Assyrians did this transmigration thing. The Samaritans are the people of the northern kingdom or in that area. So anyway, the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, I love that name. I don't know why I like the name Sennacherib. It's uh, it just, I don't know. The, the Gentile kings that they have to deal with they have such cool names. Nebuchadnezzar, which in Akkadian, I was told by a Hebrew professor that could read Akkadian, was pronounced, if you read it in, in cuneiform, it would be Nebuchadnezzar. Would probably how his mama called him, um, but uh, but we have it in Hebrew as Nebuchadnezzar, so it's close so transliteration. And now you've got Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Now I wouldn't name a dog Sennacherib because uh, he's a bad guy and he ends up being a loser. And I don't I love dogs, so I wouldn't do that to him. Um, last time I named a dog, I called him Schaefer because he was a German shepherd. And that's a joke because uh, shepherd in German is Schaefer. All right. So Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And he is now going to um, advance on what he did 20 years ago in the northern kingdom and just continue the conquest south. Now, why does he do that? Why does he have to go on this rampage, conquesting other countries and taking up more and more land, more and more property, more and more tribute. And um, I don't know why specifically Sennacherib thought he needed to do that, but I do notice a trend in history that we think that the more we can amass to ourselves for some reason, the better off we are. There's a glory factor. Once you have enough and then you're like, it's not enough, I need more. It's, it's about glory and hubris you know, at first it's about, I got to feed the family. So we just have to, you know, get a good foothold. But eventually it becomes this insanity of he who dies with the most toys wins. And there is this tendency in human beings to seek to maximally exalt themselves. And you see it in the, in the archeology, span when you read the different uh, pottery declarations, they make these special stelas, they call them. They, they make these cylinders that'll be hexagonally shaped and they'll write a bunch of stuff on there as like a monument or a trophy. And Nebuchadnezzar has some and, and you have these different kings bragging about all their, their exploits and conquests. And it's just, it's not new that this happens. It's all over the world. But here's what's interesting. Read the presidential decretals of the first presidents of this country. And read them in comparison to the Nebuchadnezzar uh, 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 cylinder or, or any one of these things you can read in the ancient Near Eastern textbooks. Um, I can show you on my computer sometime. Read what Washington says, for example, in his Thanksgiving Day proclamation uh, of, 18, of 17, I, th- I think 89, I think it is, in comparison to the great broad pronouncements of Marduk loves me and so he gave me the victory and I walked all over this king and that king and I was able to chop them down like a, like a, like a woodsman cuts down trees and they're all bragging about all their exploits and it's very Gentile pagan. It's interesting in the origins of our country, the men that were founders of this country were, had a very different tone in their public presentation. I'm not saying that they weren't self-aggrandizing sinners. 
because we all struggle with that. But I'm saying it was a different tone. And it's one of the things that I just, I'm so pleased with to be part of this project um, in our heritage that we said, you know, let's have a day of consecration to God and see, beseech, his favor, beseech God's favor on our nation and, and beg his forgiveness for our sins, national and individual. And, you know, um, much different, much more Christian approach um, among the sinful uh, founders in this country compared to the other countries. But anyway, Sennacherib is the great king. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. I told you I like the name Sennacherib. I like the name Rabshakeh even more. That's just a cool sounding name, Rabshakeh, but it means something. Um, it's the chief, the Rab is like the word rabbi, the great one. Rabbi means my great one. When you call someone rabbi, you're telling them that they're greater than you in knowledge, and so you are at their feet to learn from them. That's, the, um, that's my great one. That's what you, why you would call someone rabbi. Um, a Rab Shaka is the great Shaka. <laughs> what is a Shaka? Well, it turns out the word Shaka, that, that's also a Semitic word that you have cognates between what the, the, the Syrians would have spoken and, and Hebrew, and so it's cognate because it's Semitic language. And so shaka is to, to drink or to taste something that's being drunk. And so it roughly translates to the chief cupbearer. So it's the prime minister or the most trusted subordinate to the great Assyrian warlord king, Sennacherib. So he's the second in command. So they did it differently than we do. They send, people say the chief spokesman. He's the chief spokesman like he's the chief cupbearer. He's the most trusted subordinate to the king. And I think it's not too much of a stretch to say he had great authority. Uh, and you'll see him speak from some of that authority in a moment. The Rob Shaka, the great chief cupbearer to Sennacherib. So he knows him intimately and he knows his mind. We have a thing and we talk about in the military called commander's intent. Have you ever heard of this? A great concept. You know, it's not just an army thing. Like learn this. Figure out who's in charge. Learn their objectives, their mission, their preferences. And then the better you understand that, the freer you are to operate within their leadership, whatever the structure is. Because you know their intent. You know what they're after and you know what they would like. And it's a great thing if a commander understands how to get his intent out there or any leader. And, and if you as a subordinate learn how to pick up on that and see how, how, do we, how does the boss want to lead so I can facilitate that. And it's a great way to respond to authority. And the better you understand the commander's intent, the better you are at carrying out their, um, their instructions without being given any instructions. I didn't, I didn't have to say it and it was already done because you knew what we were kind of uh, what our mission was. So that's, this is a very close intimate of the king, apparently. And he speaks like he's speaking out of the drawing room of the king when he gives his proclamation. King Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish up north, um, above in, in the northern, north country, um, to Jerusalem, to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you have a note from the location in Jerusalem where this is happening. And we've already heard about this place in the book of Isaiah. It's in chapter 7. This is when the prophet Isaiah confronts King Ahaz or Ahaz. It's when they have the conversation that is the famous Isaiah 7.14, which we all remember is the great promise that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. 
when Isaiah is declaring to the house of David in the person of Ahaz this promise of the Messiah, which ultimately also ends up cutting off Ahaz's line because it's a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. Um, when he says this, he is standing in this very place where you confront the king of Judah. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, apparently he's like the equivalent to Rabshakeh. He's like the prime minister for under the king um, Eliakim. Under, he's like the kind of the Potiphar character in this case. And Shevna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So you have a delegation. He didn't send, the king didn't go out to meet the, the second in command of the Assyrians. He sent out his second in command and his entourage to record and to, to talk. So the kings are sending their, their representatives. You can see how that's working out politically. Now we have the first speech from Rob Shaka. Have you all read this? It reads so easy. So easy to see what's going on here. But the question I want to ask you is, can you spot in hearing the Rob Shaka speech, his effort to demoralize the people, to get them off the track? And it sounds, does it not sound a lot like God's enemy, the way he twists truth, the way he says some true things and throws some error in with it? Watch what the Rob Shaka says and remind yourself by what he says as just this representative of the greatest kingdom on earth, speaking their doctrine, their words. Remind yourself never to believe anything you read or hear in any print media or video media about anything, pretty much. Because the enemy is very good at twisting the truth, and it does it in such a way, inevitably, that you'll stop trusting God. And that's really the objective. The Rob Shaka, then not the Rob Shaka, but Rob Shaka said to them, say now to Hezekiah, now, this is a lot of embedded quotes, and it's actually a real challenge when you translate it. This is just the New American Standard, but when you translate it, it's a challenge to see where the quotes start and stop. And you could have, uh, you could have five or six layers of indentation from the inner quotes of the quotes of the quotes of the quotes. The king says, you have said in your heart <laughs> that the Lord has said. I mean, it's, it really gets interesting, um, but that's a nerd observation. So... Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Well, right there, we've run afoul of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 through 27. Who is the great king? And that's important theologically. Hey, you back there, who is the great king? Who's the great king in the story? It isn't, the, it isn't Sennacherib. Who, who's the great king? It's God. He's the God. He's Yahweh of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, and I put the words of the king of Assyria in purple. What is this confidence that you have? This is the message that Sennacherib sent me to, to bring to you. So in context, Hezekiah is not waffling. He's not accepting a, a bribe from the Assyrians. He's saying, no, we're trusting in God. And he's got a national policy that is not uh, what Jotham wanted. It's a national policy against Assyria and, uh, and against everyone else, really. He's trusting in the Lord as one of the great kings in David's line. What is this confidence you have? I don't understand why you're not listening to us that we're going to destroy you or we're going to pay you off, but we're going to rule. Why do you have confidence? Has God indeed said is the same type of question that's meant to get you off balance. What do you have 
to have confidence. And what do you have as the basis for your trust, for your hope, for your expectation? And my prayer for you is that more and more as you go forward through this life, each day being an opportunity to meditate on God's word, to know him that way, to talk to him. God speaks to you through his word. You speak to him in prayer. You have another day every day to make your life more conformed to the character of God in this inhale, exhale life of taking in God's word and talking to him about it, that you would very quickly know the answer, the only answer that could possibly be to Rob Shaka's question, which is, I have no confidence except in the God who made me. Hezekiah has no military answers. He has no solution. He is very much Shadrach and the boys with their backs against the furnace. And what was their answer? We're not bowing down. I'm not going to do it. God will deliver us. He could deliver us. If he doesn't, we'll, stop. we'll die, but we're still not bowing down. And this is where Christian moral courage comes from. Our confidence is in Yahweh. Our confidence is in God. Our only hope is in the Lord. And if you can say that, then when, when you think you have resources, all your worldly resources, and you still say, my only confidence is in the Lord, you are in good standing for when you have no resources and all you can do is testify for Jesus Christ and perhaps with the most precious thing you have, make a proclamation that will resonate through eternity, the most precious thing you have being your life. What is this confidence that you have? I say, so we have the word from Sennacherib. Now this is what Rob Shaka says. I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. We're kind of parachuting into the story in the middle. We don't know what messages have been sent back and forth between the Assyrians and Judah, the house of David under Hezekiah. We don't know what Hezekiah has said, but we know what Sennacherib and Rabshakeh think about what Hezekiah said. What do they think? Empty. There's nothing to what you're saying. Only empty words. Your counsel, counsel in this context, like Jesus is the mighty counselor in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, wonderful counselor, military strategist. Your military prowess here and the strength you could have to exercise it. We'll hear about he makes fun of them in a little bit about how they can't even field a 20 horsemen, a 200 horsemen. Your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. So I'm asking you the question, first of all, what's your confidence? Whatever answer you have, you really have no basis for confidence. This is, let me set you up and then smack you with a, with a bat, with a baseball bat. I'm going to set you up for, um, for what you think, and then I'm going to demoralize you by tearing down anything you might say. Your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. I've heard this recently. When uh, politicians, for whatever reason, say upon a crisis that touches a family in our country that they're going to pray for the people. Inevitably, someone will say, prayers don't do anything. You're just hiding behind religion in order to score political points. You know, don't tell me about your prayers. We need action. We want it now. Disarm the population or whatever. That's a pretty popular thing out there. I, I see it in my generation, among my peers, that enough of this thoughts and prayers, let's see some real action. But we believers in Christ, we who uh, have watched the life of Jesus Christ unfold in the Gospels, we believe every time we read the scriptures more in the power of prayer and we're more convicted of our need to be diligent in its practice. 
And so when I say my only hope is in the Lord in verse 4 as the answer to the first question, well, um, he's going to challenge that with, uh, yeah, it's just empty words. Yeah, good luck with your prayer. Where's your God? You know, I can't see him. At least my God's right up there and, you know, crossing the, the sky with his mighty radiant energy. Because everybody worshiped the sun in various manifestations, various mythological conceptions of the sun as, as a personal being. So, so your counsel and strength for the war, only empty words, I believe is a direct attack on the faith that Hezekiah had exemplified because he apparently is not uh, going into cahoots with other countries. He is, um, at this point, at least, trusting in the Lord. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? On whom do you rely that you've rebelled against me? And the answer, again, is the Lord. We should have sung, my hope is in the Lord. That'd be the one for, for this, more than I sing the mighty power. I sing the mighty power is Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. Now, um, who, on whom do you rely? Only in, in God. And then Rob Shaka has an answer that is not about God. It is about the nearest other uh, superpower, hegemonic power in the region. Do you know who that is? What the other military power would be in the geopolitics of that day? It'd be Egypt. So, see, over in the east, you have, um, it's hard to do this backwards, but over here, see, in the east, you have the Assyrians in Mesopotamia, and Nineveh is their headquarters. And then, but then over down here in the southwest is Egypt. And between the two is Israel. And so they're caught in the crunch between these two uh, empire builders that want to extend their influence. But he says, you surely, or you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which, let love the imagery of Rob Shaka. If a man leans his weight on this crushed reed on Egypt, it's going to go right through his hand and pierce it. You're going you're gonna to suffer directly from leaning on Egypt. It won't be any help. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. Is there anything untrue about verse 6 in terms of the value of relying on Egypt? Not from anything we've read in Isaiah. It's always cursed is the man who puts his trust in man. Remember? Our, our hope is only in God. If we put it in anything else, he turns that into a paddle to spank us with. And Isaiah. So Rob Shaka is telling the truth that if you're relying on Egypt, that won't help you. But see, Satan always throws a little truth or a little lie in with the truth that generally a true statement gets corrupted enough where if you eat it, you'll be poisoned. And that's, that's the nature of poison. It's not a whole meal of poison. It's a whole meal with a little poison, but it's enough to kill you. And that's what you have here is the truth is being slipped in. This reminds me, while we're doing correlation, it reminds me of when um, the python lady, when the, the woman with the spirit of divination, that's actually a spirit of python, it says in Greek, in, um, in Ephesus, when Paul's on his missionary travels, um, when she's preaching, uh, identifying who Paul is and, and calling him, you know, and because she's demon-possessed, she's saying, this man speaks the words of the living God. And he, he finally gets so perturbed, he says, get out of her. He casts the demon out because he doesn't want God's good things proclaimed by God's enemy because there's a disruption of, of um, truth in, inherent in 
this isn't the message of Satan, but yet Satan's uh, emissary is preaching it. Nevertheless, that's what you have here is truth in the mouth of Rabshakeh. But if you say to me, he says, we trust in Yahweh our God, which is really where the answer for Hezekiah is at this point in his life. If you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, by the way, why am I saying Yahweh there? Why am I saying, it says Lord. You see the capital O-R-D, lower, it's smaller print, but it's capital O-R-D. When you see that in your Bible, you're given a little bit of insight and a little inside baseball on the Hebrew underlying this text. The word there is yod Hey vav Her, Y-H-W-H, which we conjecture the vowel points are Yahweh, and we're never Yahuwah or Yahavah. But it's the Lord. It's the self-existent God who made all things. We trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places? Now, this is really interesting. This is a great way to kind of wind down. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So Hezekiah is one of the few iconoclast kings. Do you know what iconoclast is? Iconoclast is Latin. It means tear down idols, cut, break the idols. I once heard it said that iconoclastic arrogance is a problem where you build up an idol out of someone and get unrealistic expectations and then you tear them down when you begin to see that they're, they're not uh, perfect. And we, maybe you've been done this way. I've been done this way. You, you know, you, somebody gets the wrong idea about you, gets too high a view of you, and then when their unrealistic expectations are met, they start tearing you down. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual iconoclast the, where you have a king who sets conditions in his country for worship of God under, and this is always in the case of the house of David, under the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic law, God said, don't worship idols. That's the basis for the law. Now, what's the basis for the law? That God said, don't worship idols. So the two that really jump out at you in this phase of their history, Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah and Josiah were two that not only worshiped Yahweh and didn't chase the other gods of the Canaanites like the rest of the house of David, but they also went and tore down the high places. You cannot go operate everybody's heart for them, but you can tear down the idols. You can tear down the high places and say, there's no place for you to communally practice this in Israel since this is God's land that he's given us by covenant and the stipulations of the covenant are that we don't worship false gods. Now that's a theocratic, that's a theocracy. We don't have a theocracy. It's a different arrangement, but what's the principle? When you're ruling, when you have something God has delegated to you like a household to rule, you need to set conditions within the parameters that have been delegated to you by God, set conditions. You can't choose for the kids. They're going to choose. I mean, you can choose to a point, but they're really going to make their own choices. But you must, we must set conditions for them so that we're not facilitating any form of idolatry. And I am very grateful for the examples of Hezekiah and Josiah in this regard as a parent, as a father. So if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he, God, whose high places and altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you should worship, you should not, you should worship before this altar in Jerusalem at the, at the temple. 
And so Rabshakeh has taken the actions of Hezekiah, interpreted them through his pagan worldview that any high place in Jerusalem or in, in Judea must be to, uh, to Yahweh, their, their town god, and that's how they do it. We worship Marduk or we worship Baal, we worship these different gods, um, Molech, Chemosh, but, uh, but, but they worship Yahweh, so whenever they build an altar, it must be to Yahweh. He's reinterpreting the actions of Hezekiah through his pagan worldview. You see that? And is it not he, God, whose high places and altars Hezekiah took away? Well, no, Rob Shaka. I would love to sit you down and work you through Torah. You could learn the laws of our God. We don't, we're not allowed to have high places and altars. We're not supposed to have um, any made-up worship sites or contrived images of our God. We have a protocol system that he set up. He's very meticulous in presenting it in Exodus and the expectations he had for the setup of the tabernacle and later the temple. And we can't make any images. So what Hezekiah did, directly applying the, the dictates of the law and tearing down the idols, the pagans interpret as the exact opposite. They are calling evil good and good evil. It would have been better, Rob Chaka said, if you really want to worship Yahweh, to leave the idols up. And this is a cultural parallel to your day. Today, worshiping God is love. And love is whatever people want. Just give it to them. Don't you love them? More sugar. Give them some of that sugar. We don't know about glycemic index, but the children sure do love it. Love grandma. Give them some more sugar and just sugar them up. And once you're done, give them some more sugar. Don't worry about their diabetic condition. Don't worry about whether they go blind from it. Just give them some more sugar because it's what they want. And that's what passes today for thought, I believe, uh, in a lot of Christendom, that, you, that loving people is giving them what they want. And uh, so, no, loving people is giving them what God wants them to have. And uh, sometimes the only way you can do that, understand what I'm saying, the only way you can do that is pray for them. The only way you can do that because they're closed off to you, they don't want what you, you can't force someone's volition. You're not supposed to pressure them. We, the, the strongest we can be really is invite. Just like the Lord Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We invite. And, um, but we can pray and, and back to prayer. So Hezekiah said to Judah and Jerusalem, you have to worship in this altar. Now, therefore, come and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And I'll give you 2,000. It wasn't 200. It was 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part, to set riders on them. I'm not giving you troops, but I'll give you horses. 2,000 tanks, if you've got enough crews to service those tanks. 2,000 horses. So this is a big bribe. It's the last offer. The best I can do is you get, I'll, I'll fortify you militarily, and then you can work for us with the horses that we give you. You can give us some troops to ride those horses. So let's make a bargain. Let's work together. Let's do this that you don't want to do with Egypt. They're not going to support you. Now, what's happening in the hearts of the hearers? If somebody doesn't know the Torah, if they're not well instructed, if they're just floating along and they hear what Rob Shaka says, it sounds very reasonable. Hey, Hezekiah removed all the temples and all the churches. He took down all the worship centers. That's right. Yahweh must be mad at us for him doing that. You see how this is slick? And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's not at all how we think. 
And if you're not paying attention, and they weren't very much in this day, remember in Josiah's day, they swept up the temple and they found the law and they said, oh, we're way out of tolerance. We're, we don't know the law and God's going to get us. It says right here, we're in trouble with Leviticus 26. Well, um, this, is, this is a really slick thing he does, the little psychological operations we'd call in the army psyops, where he, he completely takes the truth and flips it on its head. And if you're not careful, you know, the, the, the more naive, the, the more ignorant, the less informed, people are just going to be like, oh, yeah, this is the media. I believe this is, this is a great picture of the media. They just tell you, like, they use words that go together like worship and altar, and, and then they get the, the, the people that will not think to run a certain direction. And um, I think it's really slick the way this shows up in the text. So make a bargain with my master. How can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? So I'll give you the horses and you can field an army. You don't even have a cavalry force at all. I'll give you a couple of battalions, a couple of, what do they call it, cav squadrons. I'll give you a couple of squadrons where the horses, if you can put men on them. But you don't have a military answer to our threat. So how are you going to do this with Egypt? And, and you can't even stop one squadron. You can't even stop one battalion commander, one knight official of the least of my master's servants, one guy just in charge of a thousand, thousand troopers. You have, no, you have no leg to stand on militarily. Have I now come up without Yahweh's approval against this land to destroy it? This is one of the greatest speeches in all the Bible. I just, you know, think about this. Rob Shaka, who knows nothing about Yahweh except his name, is just throwing the name out there. It's like politicians today. This is how God gets evoked out there by politicians, I think, sometimes. They're like, oh, the Lord. Yeah, the Lord. You know, uh, <laughs> sometimes you think that we're talking about a stranger. And um, have I now come up without Yahweh's approval against this land to destroy it? Is The answer is Yes and no. Yes and no. Assyria is God's instrument all through Isaiah to discipline Israel and the, northern, and the southern kingdom for their idolatry. So yes, God has sent them. Is God sponsoring them as though he is desiring to build them into a bigger empire? He's working for the Assyrians. No. They're an, they're an instrument that when he gets finished with, he's going to throw it away. They're, they're, a, they're a dirty instrument, and they're going to be destroyed, is Isaiah 14. Have I now come up without Yahweh's approval against the land to destroy it? Yes, you have come up without his approval in terms of him endorsing you. Uh, no, you haven't come up without his approval, so he does approve of you in terms of his calling you to, to come and discipline us. So it's really neat how Rob Shaka is smart. And, uh, and, and I think that this is a great picture of, again, of how when there's a popular message out there, we take it in. And if we're not critical, if we're not suspicious, if we don't believe there's a war on and an enemy of God working behind the scenes to, to get the people running in a certain direction, we'll just absorb it and just swallow the hook. And uh, so learn to spot the stitches on the fastball in the story here where Rob Shaka is just weaving stuff together. And um, I wonder how many people listening to this interchange had a pagan worldview too because they've been worshiping the high places, 
How many of the people in Judah thought just like Rob Shaka thought? Right? What's the difference? How do you not think like this? The Word of God. You take in the truth and you think like God thinks and you don't rework his word through the way you want it to be. You say, God, have your way. Let me arrange my understanding according to your perspective. The Lord said to me, this is my favorite one. We we started with a false prophet and went with a false prophet. Yahweh said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. The words of God in blue. (laughs) In Rav Shaka's reported speech. When somebody tells you that God told them something, they're about to say something that you're supposed to believe and not be critically thinking about. That's the, converse, that's the conversation the person's trying to have with you. I'm about to tell you something that you can't know unless you just take it on faith, and I'm going to tell you. God told me. God told me that Romney was, was going to win the election. The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Now, I do not believe Yahweh spoke to Rob Shaka at all. I think it's a lie. But I do uh, understand from the earlier oracles in Isaiah chapters 1 through um, 11 that there is the use of Assyria in the hands of God to discipline Judah. He would use them that way. So it's yes and no. And that's the don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool as his folly deserves. So I, I just I think it's neat to pick this apart and think through how this liar is spinning what he's spinning and how the people are so easily taken in by it. You can imagine how, uh, if you're not careful, you would be uh, taken in. What, what's the takeaway here? Well, we started with God's omnipotence and his promise of what he said he's going to do. And now we have Mr., um, Mr. Spokesman for the enemy saying that you can't trust in God, you can't trust in Egypt, you're going to have to become our vassal. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, if you read ahead... Um, It'll resolve your tension, but we're going to chew on it a little bit next time. Um, God actually does what he said he would do, and um, there's not a big fanfare about it. He just does it. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of the word of God, for the character of your son, for the, the wonderful message throughout the scriptures of your omnipotence, that we can trust you because you are all-powerful, and we see your power working in scripture. Father, we don't always see it working in our experience, but we want to. We want to, and Paul taught us in Ephesians 1 to pray that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see your power toward us who believe. And so we ask for that, even as we adopt your attitude and your perspective about geopolitics. Help us remember that whatever the circumstance that we're hearing about in media and the news and various talking heads out there, that always there is the question that you are in control and we're waiting to see what you are going to do. Father, we lay history and our concerns about it in your hands. We trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.